Well, Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God, written for you and for me today. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied, who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Indeed, this is the word of God for the people of God. Well, beloved in Christ, David knew the many benefits of his salvation. Indeed, there are glorious benefits to all those who are members of Christ and who partake of those in this life, as well as in that which is to come. And what are those benefits? Well, being recipients of divine grace and love, we are blessed to have the living God work in and for us, along with his rich promises to us. David's words in Psalm 103, verses 2 through 5, need to be regularly in our minds. They need to have our attention and be in our practice. Consider verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Beloved, in these verses, see that because we have and know the divine favor of God, we are drawn to doxological praise that comes from the innermost part of our being. Again, it's, it's wholehearted praise given to God as we bless His holy name. But see also that, that though our memories are weak, we are regularly called to remember and consider the benefits of our being forgiven, healed, saved, and crowned by Christ. And such remembrance draws praise from our lips. And so as we think about and study theology, when it comes to considering the benefits of our union with Christ, we consider what the Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 1, which is really summarized in the doctrine of the Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation. Beloved, union with Christ makes it possible for all believers to experience the inseparable benefits of regeneration and justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification. Praise the Lord for this. 
And so even considering more of David's mindfulness of these things, of his membership, remember what we were taught in Psalm 15. David knew who could dwell in God's presence on his holy hill. He also knew who couldn't. And being one of those who could and would never be moved by the grace of God, David knew of his great dependence and his need for God's aid and work. And so let us now look at David's reflection on the benefits that God had given him. And we find his cry for preservation in verses 1 and 2, his, his words about the excellent ones and the sorrowful ones in verses 3 and 4 as well as our Lord, who is the portion of our cup, in verses 5 and 6. And as we do so, know that Psalm 16 is a mictum of David. And what is a mictum? Well, it's not a word that we use, right? It's a Hebrew word that means an engraving or golden. Some scholars would even question whether we truly know what a mictum is and can accurately describe it in the English language. But many say that a mictum is an engraving or golden, and this is also a messianic psalm that we find here in Psalm 16. And in this mictum, in this golden and precious psalm, David is very clearly and really prophetically pointing us to Christ, his death, and resurrection. And we're going to see that even in more clarity next week, Lord willing. But in many ways, as much as this is a song of David, it's also a song of Christ to his father. We need to see that. Look at verse 1. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. And so see David here flying to his Lord with cheerful, believing confidence. Though David was engulfed with stress and various troubles, we've considered many of them in our times in the Psalms, notice that he doesn't begin this psalm with a complaint to God. No, he he comes in the joy of his salvation. It's from the place of sincere trust that he calls out to God for his preserving grace. David makes a similar request in Psalm 25, verse 20, when he says, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Now, as we think about David's request here, we should be mindful of what God teaches us in Scripture regarding both perseverance and preservation. Perseverance and preservation. Many of you know well that the perseverance of the saints is the fifth point in the doctrines of grace, or what would otherwise be called the five points of Calvinism. And it teaches us of the Spirit's grace in true believers to stay the course and to persevere through trials, sin, falls, and failures, and to get up by the grace of God and to keep running the race of faith to the end. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, section 1, which we actually confess this evening. Again, think of this as these words are spoken. 
They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. It was this truth that David knew. It was this truth that he prayed and pleaded with the Lord to continue to bring about for him in preservation. And David here points us to the doctrine of divine preservation, where David beseeched God to watch over him and to protect him to the end. And this preservation really has the ultimate sense in view. In other words, his request was, Preserve me unto eternal salvation, O Lord. But my friends, when we by faith trust him, submitting to his divine care and guidance, we have sure hope of the benefits of his care and guidance. We have the sure hope of that. God will carry out his promises to those who trust him. And this is what he promises. In Jesus' prayer to his father, in John chapter 12, verse 27, we see his trouble and trust. In verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Consider those words. Jesus was troubled in his flesh, in his humanity, but fully trusted his Father in his preserving care and glorifying work. And what was God the Father's response in verse 28? Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Indeed, God anointed Jesus to be our Messiah, our substitute. We've been considering that much in Matthew, haven't we? He was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Jesus did not fail. He didn't give in to temptation. He didn't shrink back from the task that the Father sent him to accomplish. Jesus came for this purpose. Father, Glorify your name, he says. And so consider these prophetic words of preservation from the Father to the Son, even in Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, referring to Christ, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. And notice verse 8, thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, and to those who are in darkness, 
Show yourselves. Indeed, these are the words of the Father to the Son. To the Son who would go and set the captives free. To the light of the world who would shine the light of his gospel into the dark places. And tell them to show yourselves. He goes on, they shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. Beloved, see the great work of God, not only in proclamation of the gospel and salvation, but also then in his leading and guidance of his precious lambs, in his mercy, and because, and to the ones he has mercy upon, he will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. Very much we see Psalm 23 type language here, don't we? But in Psalm 16, as as David goes on to speak of more benefits, he recognizes his own dedication to God. Look at verse 2. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Beloved, if God is your God, then that changes everything on a daily, even minute-by-minute basis. If you confess in your soul that God is your God, that the Lord is your Lord, you must dwell with Him and intentionally walk in obedience before Him in accordance with His will. In David's dedication here, see that he's not only committed to the Lord under his sovereign rule as David's master, but he also had God-given insight to see the benefits of his salvation, along with the source and the giver of the benefits that he had. And what are some of those benefits? What does he say? Well, as David considers goodness, he knew and confessed that he had no inherent goodness in and of himself. David, in his soul apart from God, would stand proud, saying that he did and said many good things. All praise be to David. But none of those thoughts, words, or deeds are truly good in God's eyes, not to mention the sinfulness of pride therein. Indeed, as David said in Psalm 14, verse 3, there is none who does good, no, not one. We see Paul repeat this in Romans. Indeed, there is no goodness that man can give to God. God is the epitome. He is the definition of the perfection of goodness. There is nothing that he needs. There is no hole in his goodness. There is no lack in his goodness. There is nothing that man can give. And David confesses this. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, verse 7, says this, Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands. 
and of good use both to themselves and others. Yet because they note, proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet, their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. This is the true state of the works of men and of good works. And yet the soul that is in union with and in service to Christ, beloved, has been given grace to see and to understand this. It has been given grace to see that any goodness in us or that comes from us to others is nothing apart from God. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's nothing apart from God. It is all from God. The, the, the value in such works, the goodness in such works, is all from the Lord as they are done by his grace, by his work, and for his glory in accordance with his word. And so there is no autonomous goodness in us. All of the good is of God. And again, we see in verse 2, the song of Christ to his Father. For Jesus submitted himself to serve his Father and to do his will. If you consider John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And notice verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should, of, excuse me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We see here the gifts of the Father to the Son. We see this, the, the Son's submission to the will of the Father. We see the blessings of salvation here. We see those whom the Son died for, those whom the Son redeemed, those who believe in the Son have the great benefit of everlasting life, the great blessing and gift of everlasting life. We have the great benefit and blessing of the resurrection. But further, as the Father and the Son are one, the pure goodness of the Son is the goodness of the Father. All that Jesus thinks, says, and does are good to the core. So God's goodness and the benefits thereof is also marvelously evident in his electing grace. And this is what we see in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 16. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
My friends, God's abundant love and favor is upon and his goodness towards those whom he has set apart from before the foundation of the world. These are the saints of Christ. These are the excellent ones. Praise the Lord. Now, why are the saints of God called the excellent ones here? Because it is God who, contrary to the despising world, gives great honor and value to his people, as we are set apart from the world to be his holy people, in whom he delights. Think about this for a moment. Do you truly grasp David's words here, which are also Christ's? If you belong to Christ, all of God's delight is upon you. Beloved, that can be a hard thing to swallow sometimes. Maybe a hard thing to believe. As we hear the criticisms of the world, as we maybe even uh, think upon criticisms within our own hearts. I'm such a wretch, how could God have any delight in me? I've got so many problems, I've done so many things, I've said so many things, there is no way that God could delight in me. But he does delight in you. You are of the excellent one. You need to let that sink into your heart and refresh you and comfort you and challenge you today to think rightly about yourself in the eyes of God. By his grace and by his electing love, you have his favor. All of his delight is upon you as you are in Christ. All of his delight is upon you because all of his delight is upon his son. And you are in him. In Psalm 18, verse 19, we read this. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me. Why? Because he delighted in me. Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, many of you may be familiar with this verse. It's a wonderfully encouraging verse. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Let this verse also be a salve to your heart and to the contrary thoughts and messages in your mind about your value in God's eyes and at what he thinks of you, how he looks at you. Does he truly have a smiling face toward you? Yes, he does. All of his delight is in you as it is in Christ. He sings, he rejoices, 
He quiets you with his love. Beloved, Christ delights in his saints. He delights in his people. He rejoices over you and know he prays for you. We see this in his high priestly prayer. John 17, he prays for you. He is praying for you and me even now at the right hand of the Father. In Psalm 16, verse 4, he then speaks to those who are not the excellent ones. He speaks of them saying, Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Beloved, see that the same loving and joyful heart that is wide open to the saints is closed shut to those who are in rebellion to him and against him. Those who Christ is shut against are are under divine condemnation even now. And unless they are of his elect, unless they repent and, and turn to him in true faith, we see the proclamation that they will be the eternally sorrowful ones. They will have sorrow that will have no relief, no comfort, no end. David would not, and Christ did not, and will never join in the wicked worship of idolaters. Jesus being the Son of God, the the perfect Lamb of God, kept his Father's law perfectly. He would not, he will not, and never will give worship to another. For he alone is worthy of such worship from his creatures. Idolatry is a high crime in the holy court of God. Remember Satan's failure to sway Jesus when he tempted Christ in the wilderness and his being cast away from his presence. Christ had the power, the sovereign power and the authority to do that. He rejected Satan's attempts. He rejected Satan's words. He rejected and silenced his lures. Cut him off. No. For it is written. Satan had no foothold. He had no inch, no millimeter, no nothing in the mind or heart of God. He had nothing that he could hold on to against Christ. Absolutely nothing. And therefore, Jesus sovereignly cast him away. Leave. Depart from me. Satan had no option. Matthew Henry says this regarding idolaters. Those that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whoever thinks one god too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds not enough. Such the conflicted heart in those who do not fear God and seek after others. Indeed, their portion will be the suffering of great pain, 
On the day of judgment, the goats, the, the wicked, will be cast into everlasting punishment. We see Matthew 25, verse 46. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Endless tears, endless weeping, endless anger and frustration against the sovereign Lord. And how dare he cast them into such a tormentuous place and condition. But that is their end. For all eternity. And though this will be the dreadful cup for the sorrowful one, what is another benefit for Christ and his people? Full cups and a grand inheritance, notice, in verse 5. Look at that in Psalm 16. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. David knew his heavenly inheritance. Even that being the Lord himself, he knew the Lord God was his inheritance. Jesus knows the same. He takes no earthly inheritance, but fully receives and enjoys the Lord as his riches and glory. He said, you maintain my lot. Again, the language of preservation Returns here, doesn't it? God preserves and sustains. Beloved, God is enough. Jesus is enough to fill our cup and to make it overflow with his riches. He is enough to fill us. He is enough to maintain us and to sustain us and to abundantly bless us with the inheritance that is ours in Christ, the inheritance of eternal life, the inheritance of heaven, the inheritance of Jesus and full communion with the triune God for all eternity. Even that which we enjoy now by the Spirit, even today, we enjoy the communion with God, but then face-to-face and fully. There is much in Psalm 23 that aligns here with Psalm 16. If you consider these words here, consider Psalm 23 verses 5 and 6 as well in their connection. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord's blessing and the benefits of communion and union with the living God now in this life, and the blessing and the benefits of that which is to come. Indeed, our cup runs over with Christ. It can't but overflow hundreds of times over, thousands of times over. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Praise the Lord. See that the quality of the inheritance is also spoken to here in verse 6. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. My friends, Christ considers his inheritance and he sees it as a beautiful inheritance. 
Namely, the glory of God shared with the saints the Father had given him. We see that pictured here. But see the wonderful benefits as we consider this portion of the psalm. See the wonderful benefits of the work and the victory of Christ for you and have great comfort and joy as you see this window of Jesus' relationship, trust, and love with and obedience to God the Father. Indeed, may may Christ's prayer and song be yours today as well. Know the electing love of your God. His delight is upon you and in you, O excellent ones. Know His preserving and sustaining grace. And I, I pray that this truth strikes you more deeply than it has before. Jesus delights in you. And how do you receive the words of all his delight being in you? Oh, how marvelous the delight of the living God in his people truly is. But I ask you, do you know and confess God to be the portion of your cup and inheritance? Do you see the beauty and the fullness of the inheritance that you have in Jesus and praise him for it? I pray as you consider these things, as you consider his love, his delight, his work in and for you, I pray that you will more and more today and in the days ahead. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Psalm 16. We thank you for this window not only into David's heart, but also to see Christ, to see you, Lord Jesus, and your relationship with the Father as well, and even the wonderful benefits that we have because of you and being in you. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would impress these more and more in our hearts this day. We talk a lot about theology and read Scripture and study Scripture, Lord, but we will always be students. There is more that we need to know. There is more that we need to learn. There is more that we need to experience in relationship with you. Press the reality and the truth of your delight more and more into our hearts this day, we pray. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.